Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. This week, we're taking a look at how the city, its people, and its architecture affect the environment. I'm joined by urban ecologist Jason Alosio. We discuss how the concrete jungle known as New York City can be, and possibly should strive to be, more like a regular jungle. But first, Fordham University Ph.D. candidate William Haffey discusses his bird-friendly project to keep our feathered friends safe from an unlikely adversary. Help me understand the ecological impact that all these bird deaths have. Sure. Well, bird collisions are one of the greatest causes of bird fatalities in this nation, in the United States, and that follows predation by feral house cats. Feral house cats are actually the largest uh, direct cause of bird deaths, and second only to that is or are fatalities with windows. So windows and cats are there. Windows and cats are big problems. Okay. So if you got a cat and it's out outside, bring it inside. Gotcha. To save some lives. Studies have shown, or actually they're really estimates, have shown that anywhere between a hundred million and one billion birds die each year. Um, and this is nationwide. And this is nationwide. But of course, these are just estimates, and the likely figures may be actually much higher than a billion. How do they determine that number? A lot of the studies rely on collecting carcasses uh, underneath windows, buildings, skyscrapers, and whatnot. And so by, you know, doing a meta-analysis, combining all these studies that collect carcasses, you can develop some sort of an estimate of nationally how many birds die every year. So we'll just explain exactly what your project and testing is. What are you doing? Sure. Um, So my project began as kind of a tip from my advisor, Dr. Alan Clark, who, uh, you know, biology professor over in Freeman Hall. And he called me into his office and suggested that I take a look at this potential study. And this was maybe, I guess, two years ago, right, kind of right after I started here in the fall of 2012. And it involved working with the American Bird Conservancy and a lady by the name of Dr. Christine Shepard, who was kind of the authority as far as this stuff goes, and also New York City Audubon. And he laid out for me exactly what was going to happen. We were going to try to to build this mechanism called a flight tunnel in which I would be able to test different patterns of glass that supposedly um, would reduce bird collisions. That would be visible to birds. And it was my job to see if this was actually true, if this would hold any water. So birds would be able to see the window, and they're not able to see windows now, which is why they crash? True. Yeah, so now the problem, to be honest... Birds or and people cannot see glass if it's good glass. Obviously, if there's smudges on it and stuff, it's visible. But clear glass, no, you can't see. We could actually perceive glass because there are cues. We get used to it. We realize that things that, uh, if you could see plants out outside, plants from inside a house, that there's glass there, and so we know not to walk through it or stick our hand through so it. So there's certain things we perceive cues, that, that, exactly. that birds don't. They um, don't rely on visual cues like humans do to be able to realize that their glass is present. For instance, you'll see some atriums and whatnot down in Manhattan uh, will have plants or you know various plantings inside a glass atrium, and the um, and birds will just see the plants. They can't see the actual glass and will fly, not realizing the glass is there, towards the plants, hoping to perch on them or feed in them. And they'll strike the glass and die, not even knowing they were there. One of the ways to reduce this or eliminate this problem is by installing patterns on the outside of glass. And these patterns are what 
are visible to birds because birds and people really are never going to be able to see the glass, but they'll be able to see the patterns and identify that as uh, restricted airspace, so to speak. So they're not going to be um, tricked, I guess you could say, into flying through some through an actual barrier. How did you determine what kind of patterns would work? Okay. Um, well, there are two uh, flight tunnels, and this is the apparatus, again, that I'm using to test these patterns. At the Bronx Zoo. At the Bronx Zoo, yeah. It's located off exhibit at the Bronx Zoo. And there are um, two tunnels that have that are actually still currently in operation. And um, I based my tunnel design. Actually, I didn't design it once again. Um, it was designed to you know, much help, actually. The, the design was based on these two other tunnels. And these two other tunnels have tested a wide variety of different patterns. And actually, the patterns I tested in the new Bronx tunnel over at the Bronx Zoo uh, were tested at these other locations. And so by when I tested these patterns, I was, in essence, trying to verify or calibrate the efficacy of this Bronx tunnel to make sure that the results were replicable between these tunnels. Right, because you can, someone can test them somewhere else and say they work. They might not necessarily True. work here with these particular type of birds, maybe. Or... or or the problem doesn't actually have to be the glass. It could be the tunnel itself. I might have to... There, certainly alterations have been made even from the inception of the Bronx Tunnel that have reduced slight problems that we've had with the tunnel. And it's it's just... It's a prototype tunnel, but there's not a lot that can't be tweaked. Right. So, And uh, that's your job. That's my job is to see if I could compare the data from the two, really the two tunnels. What does the pattern look like? Sure. There are a lot of different patterns that are tested, shall I say. There's a general rule out there that's been put forth by Dr. Christine Shepard, the American Bird Conservancy, and other studies and other individuals have uh, attested to this, and it's kind of the gold standard that birds, for the most part, are unwilling to fly through uh, a certain dimension of space. So if you have horizontal lines, birds will be unwilling to fly through any space that is less than five centimeters wide. And then for vertical lines, uh, 10 centimeters is the, the width between two potential lines. And I speak of parallel lines simply because this is the pattern that uh, was originally tested as far as to establish this rule anyway. And there have been slight variations on it. People have tried to put dots at the corner, the corners of the rectangle that makes up these dimension of five by 10 rectangle and see if that works. The science is still working itself out. Right, but you're still tweaking that. Yeah, so the, the patterns kind of all have this basic, you know, rule. That, that they, they don't, have to that, be a certain a, amount of dimensions. Yeah. So, and you're tweaking it anyway, so it might change True. a little bit, right? That's true. The, and uh, actually, to go back to what you were speaking of earlier, as far as the different types of patterns, a lot of times the patterns are made by applying tape to a piece of sheet glass or window glass or whatever. So a lot of times you'll find patterns made of you know quarter-inch wide tape that's applied to a piece of glass, and you'll find four or five, say, to a, a you know a twenty-inch by forty-inch sheet of glass, you'll have five of them horizontally arranged on there, and that'll be the pattern. So you'll see different variations along that theme, but usually it has to do with some sort of application of tape. Are you using tape or are you using something else to make the pattern? There's a couple different things, actually. One, I am using tape. It looks like chart tape, if you know what chart tape is. It kind of has this a little bit of a glossy finish. It kind of has a, 
a very smooth um, external feel. Mm -hmm. um, and I use that to make some of my patterns, specifically the ones that are looking to test um, this rule that I was mentioning before. I'm also testing really two other classes, if you want to call it, of patterns. One is a plexiglass that was used in Germany or Austria, but it was used as a sound barrier on a highway. And they installed along highway sound barriers made out of clear plexiglass, and birds were dying unbelievably. I mean, dead birds all over the place because they couldn't see the plexiglass. And then they decided to use this it's called plexiglass sound stop with embedded black lines. So there's actually black fibers that are embedded in the plexiglass. And they put this up at, a, at you know, I don't know, a short stretch of road. And there were no fatalities found underneath this short stretch that used this plexiglass. And so I have a, a sheet of that that I'm testing as well. And also I'm testing something called Ornolux Mikado. It's a, this is very newfangled this is kind of the cutting edge new frontier of we're um, getting in on the bottom this, line yeah here. exactly <laughs> on the um, ground floor <laughs> they'll pay me after so, <laughs> <laughs> it's um it's a sheet of glass that has uv reflective strips on it and birds actually are able to see in that part of the spectrum we can't see it but birds can and so the the reasoning behind this is that if we put things that birds can see and we can't see on windows that people may be more inclined to use that for aesthetic reasons. Yeah, well, because what I was reading uh, is that there are some people who are uh, extremely, you know, concerned with bird deaths, so they don't mind putting up True. things on their own windows so that birds can see them. But then there are other people who are who think that it it, it won't be so attractive in Manhattan if you can see what the birds can see. That's true. I guess it's more... it's. Depends on how concerned you are and if you're in charge, really. If you're a building right. manager, you might be able to pull the trigger on something like this. But right. if you're... Maybe you know, people will be more inclined to incorporate that type of, of window technology into buildings if you, if we as people can't see them. True. But it's going to save birds' true. lives. And not to be political or anything, but I'm sure legislation would be not only far easier to pass, but probably far more ethical in demanding... The, you know, public spaces to have bird-friendly glass rather than demanding private buildings have, you know. Because I think when people see, you know, like you were saying, when people see, you might see one or two birds, you know. That's really what it is. And you don't yeah. think it's that big of a deal, but in collaboration, house, yeah. exactly. When you think about how many people are in America, how many windows are in America, how many birds are across the nation, and, you know, it's it's a number that's phenomenal. Yeah, a re that, well, a recent study came out, just re actually just this year, that said that on average... Was it about two birds die every year per house? But when you extrapolate it out, residential homes account for most of the bird deaths out there. Obviously, per structure, skyscrapers or low-rise, high-rise buildings are far greater than an individual house. But when you look at these different classes of buildings and you look at the high-rise and whatnot, residential houses just... Pfft. Wow. Yeah. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Now I'm joined by urban ecologist Jason Alosio. He's here to explain why New York really is a concrete jungle when it comes to the environment. So Jason, explain to me what is the heat island effect and how do green roofs help alleviate it? 
Yeah, the urban heat island effect is an effect where if I was standing in downtown New York City on a hot summer day, I would look at my thermometer on my iPhone and it would read 95 degrees Fahrenheit, super hot July day. Then I would flip over a couple swipes and I would look at the temperature up in White Plains in Westchester or out east a little bit on Long Island, Nassau County, or over in New Jersey, and it would be probably 80, 83 degrees. It would be like 9 or 10 degrees Fahrenheit cooler just a few miles outside of the city. Why the difference? That's the urban heat island effect. And the difference happens because we remove natural surfaces that typically have plants in them that capture sunlight and do evapotranspiration and cool the air. And we remove those surfaces and replace them with paved surfaces and with dark surfaces. We have buildings and roadways and all of these things absorb heat energy throughout the day and then release it slowly overnight and increase the temperature in the city area. In addition to that, we have all of these people that are driving. We have mass transit. We have air conditionings. We have all of these things that are contributing heat energy to the heat island effect making temperatures in the city higher than the surrounding suburban and rural areas. So how do green roofs help with that? Well, I guess you ain't sort of answered it because the plants are there. Bingo. And the plants help it to be cool because it, it it's absorbing some of the water. Not only do green roofs absorb water, but they reduce temperatures also. If I took one of those fancy little guns that has a little laser that reads temperature. Did you ever see one of those yeah. before? You take one of those temperature reading laser guns, shoot it at a black rooftop in the summertime, and you could read 115, 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Then you shoot it at a green roof, and you would read like 90 or 85 degrees. So we're looking at like a 30 degree difference in temperature on a roof with the green roof on it compared to a black roof, a tar roof. And that also answers a question that a critic uh, said, well, you know, green roofs really only help the person right below it because it's, you know, it's making their apartment building, whatever, a little bit cooler, but not necessarily from your explanation because it's more of a universal island um, thing. It's cumulative, right? Mm -hmm. Every person's actions result in societal outputs and so if i'm in a building and it's a little bit cooler and i'm using a little bit less air conditioning well then i'm burning a little bit less uh, electricity and a little bit less carbon is coming out so in effect i'm cooling down the entire ecosystem and if we do that on a citywide scale uh, we can see reductions in the urban heat island furthermore one of the one of the uh, other studies and, and critics about green roofs versus not green roofs for the urban heat island, a recent study came out that said, well, why don't we just paint all of our rooftops white? Because white doesn't absorb as much light energy. It reflects it, right? And it will be a cooler surface. If I point that same temperature laser gun at a white roof and a black roof, the black roof will be hundred something degrees and the white roof will be below a hundred degrees but white roofs will reduce temperatures for the building itself 
but because they're white, they're reflecting that light energy back up. And if we have a city that has a lot of particulate matter in it, then that light energy is just going back up and some of it is still going to be captured in the atmosphere and in the air. And so we're still going to have some heat island effects as a result of that. So the green roof is really the best way of reducing urban heat island effect when we're talking about rooftop heat island mitigation. And it has the added benefit of the stormwater. And it has the added benefit of biodiversity by creating habitat. And it's beautiful. So, you know, it's a win-win-win situation. The only downside is the cost, and, and that's being reduced over time. So I have a hypothetical for you, Jason. Do you envision a time when maybe growing veggies on green roofs will increase to the point the businesses will be able to buy solely from local producers and we'll be getting our tomatoes and veggies from, you know, the Bronx and, and Queens as opposed to New Jersey or Connecticut? Look, in urban sustainability, diversified portfolio is the answer. Just like in your financial portfolio, right? If you are a bird and you're looking down at Manhattan, 35% of the surface area of Manhattan rooftop space. Okay? That is a huge wealth of space that is unused. And we need to use that space in creative ways. Rooftop agriculture, rooftop greenhouses, straight green roofs for habitat and stormwater mitigation, solar panels, as well as combining all four of those together. Diversification is the key to urban sustainability. And so I wouldn't say any one of those things is going to be the future and is going to be the silver bullet, but combinations of all of those things are really the answer. We have rooftop agriculture going on in Brooklyn and in Queens. We have um, Whole Foods installed a rooftop greenhouse on their new building in Gowanus. There was a request for proposals out for some for a rooftop agricultural facility on the top of the Fulton Fish Market. So it's something that's growing, but it is not a single answer. Not to mention that you just would never be able to get the production from straight rooftop agriculture that you would be required to feed an entire city. There is also uh, vertical farming, which is another really interesting. What's vertical farming? Vertical farming is like taking a building and turning a multi-story building into a greenhouse. Yeah. So imagine a big glass building with plants growing throughout the entire thing, 14, 15 stories tall in the middle of Manhattan. And people just coming in and grabbing uh, plants right off of the shelf as they rotate around in these conveyor belts that allow them exposure to light at all different angles. That could be a, a future that we see. But again, it's one piece of many. What would your dream research be without any barriers to hold you back? What would the thing you would just love to, to, to delve into and discover or rediscover or? Oof. I mean, honestly, I love what I do. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. 
I, I would do what I'm doing right now on an even bigger scale, uh, international, intercity. I'm fascinated with urban environments and how they function. And Why? Well, because the reality is that um, 75 percent of our ice-free landmass has been altered by humans in some way. And we have all of these, quote, novel ecosystems, these new ecosystems. Um, and by new, they're new within the last couple hundred years or so that we don't really know anything about. Ecologists tend to not study these urban ecosystems, these novel ecosystems, nearly as much as they study these natural ecosystems. And more than 50% of the world's population lives in urban areas right now. Over the next 15 years, that number is going to continue to increase. And by 2030, 2050, we're looking at 70% of the world's population living in urban areas. And urban areas are expected to double in size in the next 15 years. And so we have these areas that are just dominated by people and they are novel ecosystems that we are constantly changing and altering. And I'm fascinated with the interaction between people and environment and understanding how those environments are working and how people interact with those environments. Um, and I would like to study that at multi-city and, glo and global scales because uh, the vast majority of urban growth is actually going to occur in developing countries in Africa and Asia. So my ideal study would be to kind of pair studies that are happening here in the United States with studies that we can uh, conduct simultaneously and in sort of identical fashion in developing countries throughout the world. And then we can get broad scale conclusions about cities all across the world because it turns out that we it appears that cities throughout the world actually function species comp compositions in cities throughout the world are similar and it seems that cities in general sort of function in similar ways and really that's kind of big questions about ecologies. How can we make generalizations so that we can help inform large-scale decision-making and policy? And so really, ultimately, I want all of my research to be able to inform policy and inform applications to improve our management of urban ecosystems. And that's my last question that's on topic. I have a question that has Absolutely nothing to do with what we've been talking about, but I'm hoping you can answer it. Mm -hmm. What is a carbon footprint? Think about your daily life. You wake up in the morning, you have a cup of coffee, you have a couple eggs and some bread, and then you get into your car and you drive to work, and then you're at work and you eat food, and you come home and you eat food, and you're at work, you're using paper all day, and you're writing with pens. And you're doing all of these things every day and you're using products, manufactured products or items that were grown. And all of these things come from the environment. Everything around us, this table, this cup, my cell phone, the paper, it's all come from the environment. And so when we think about the carbon footprint, we think about the amount of carbon 
that we consume in a year usually as a result of the products that we consume and use. Okay, what does that mean? So if I was to, so uh, I have a good example. So I'm gonna be printing out my dissertation hopefully within the next couple months. That dissertation is really a book. It's gonna be a couple hundred pages of paper. And papers and come from trees. Comes from trees. And that paper comes from trees and there needed to be trees growing somewhere in order for me to get this paper. Those trees grew and they photosynthesized and they captured carbon from the atmosphere through photosynthesis and put it into this big tree, this big woody biomass. That tree got cut down, then it got put on a truck, and then it came here to a manufacturing plant and then got turned into paper. Each one of those steps uses fossil fuels for transportation. Each one of those steps uses manpower and chemicals and all sorts of things that can be translated into carbon emissions. And so the way you calculate your carbon footprint is the amount of carbon emissions that come from all of your product consumption throughout a year. So I can calculate the carbon footprint of my dissertation by figuring out how much fossil fuels were burned in the chopping and of a tree and turning it into paper and then getting it to my doorstep and printing it. So it's not about us and who we are it's more about what we do because I'm thinking so the less materials you use so to speak will allow you possibly to use or consume uh, if you consume less then you won't need to have like let's say use your dissertation on a on a computer well I don't know if that counts but they don't you, know, they, so they, you gotta print it out <laughs> okay if you don't this print is old it out, school yeah. this is this is academia right here you it's know? boredom's fault <laughs> okay so if you have let's just say you they were allowing you to use it on your laptop instead of print it out so there was a chance that you might use less of a carbon footprint because you didn't have to go through the process of um getting the paper and driving it to a place and but if you don't use those hundred pages then it might be able to be used somewhere else or not at all right. is that what it what we're sort of saying yeah yeah okay i think so it's almost like you have to have faith in human beings to believe that okay i'm gonna do this and maybe somebody else will do something that will reduce their carbon footprints i'm a pragmatic optimist okay <laughs> I'm, I, I consider myself a pragmatic optimist and i, I do have faith in the human people so right just by living in a city, for example, you have a smaller carbon footprint, a smaller ecological footprint, a smaller carbon footprint than you would if you were living outside of a city. Right. Well, in cities, it's higher density of people. So you have one truck that's driving with all this food to one location, central location, and it's being distributed to everybody. You have six million people riding you know the 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 four five six every day instead of driving you have people riding their bicycles and walking to work and so all of these things reduce carbon footprint um so just by living in a city you're actually reducing and and those of you living in suburbs and further it's okay there's lots of you. I grew up in the suburbs, and I loved it out there. I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if I didn't grow up in the suburbs. So, and this is one of the things that really concerns me about 
as we continue to urbanize is, you know, as we have more and more of our population moving into cities, are we going to lose touch with nature and lose touch with understanding of where my tomato comes from? And if I lose touch with where my tomato comes from and where the paper comes from for my dissertation, will I stop thinking about making decisions in a sustainable way because I'm not thinking about the ecosystem in any way. I'm just thinking about consuming and consuming and consuming. So this is really one of the central issues that concerns me most about urbanization and sustainability as we move forward into the future. It's maintaining uh, an effective uh, and meaningful connection to nature. And we can do that by installing green infrastructure, green roofs, bioswales, street trees. We can green our city. We can turn our city from a, a drab, gray, hot, Pollute. dirty, polluted place into a urban jungle. And I don't know about you, but I would much prefer to be walking up and down streets of a jungle than uh, a <laughs> I'd like to thank my guests, Jason Alosio and William Haffey. I'd also like to thank my producer, Dan Murphy. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Stay with us, George Bodarkey and Cityscaper next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. <laughs> <laughs>